back from vacation. I made the mistake of listening to this podcast. Um, Matt Modica, one of the guys who I uh, talked to about football from time to time, recommended this Sean Siegel and Ben Gretsch podcast. This is more content for my uh, Real Man Sports podcast, but it, it applies here too. And so I listened to it, and the guys are both smart, and they know what they're talking about. In fact, like it reminds me of listening to something that you know the XM show that Jeff and I used to do a little bit. We'd get into a lot of theory and you know why you do what you do and the sort of principles behind structuring a team a certain way, baseball and football. And I'm listening to it, and you know they have some leans that are similar to mine, and they have some leans that are different. And I start sort of like thinking about my drafts that I've done already and like kind of comparing them against what they're saying is sort of the answer key. And I'm like, wait, I guess I might've screwed some of these things up. They don't like DK Metcalf and I have them in all three leagues. And I actually don't love DK Metcalf. I just took him because I like him well enough uh, and it fit the structure of my team and where I was getting him. But I don't, you know, it wasn't a guy I was had to have on my team. And I started to sort of get the sense of like, oh, maybe I need to change it up a bit and listen to what they're saying. And then I caught myself and was like, no, 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 I absolutely do not need to do that. And there's always this trade-off between taking in new ideas and new information uh, and then kind of screwing up your own process with respect to that. And it's, it's, you know, I've done this also for a lot, a lot of years. I have also kind of refined my sense of, what player is a good value, what structure works in a given environment, how the NFL seems to be going, what players I have a bad feeling about or don't fit with what I'm trying to do. And then you start to incorporate the ideas of other people. And, you know, ideally you'd say, okay, do these ideas make sense? And then rethink them from the ground up for yourself. But it's hard not to just, you know, and these guys are smart. They have had some success, at least one of them for sure. And so you, you start to substitute their conclusions for your conclusions rather than incorporate the ideas into your basic understanding. And it gets really kind of messy. And I realize the better the podcast, the worse it is. And it's probably not the best sales pitch for my own podcast, but this is less directly actionable. This is more like very, very, general stuff usually, although I, I do have very specific opinions on things too. But um, it just got me realizing, no, I don't listen to football podcasts. Um, I sometimes listen to Bitcoin podcasts or other podcasts. I actually don't listen to that many podcasts because it's not my preferred. It's weird. I do a podcast. I do two different ones. And yet it's not my, pervert, my preferred way of consuming information. I, I rather read something, read an article. It's easier for me. I, I know people like podcasts because they're driving or they're going for a run or something and they can do something else while doing it. I kind of have a hard time. Driving actually is fine. It actually works. But you know, when I'm at home, which is a lot of the time, I can't really have a podcast on in the background. It has to be sort of the thing I'm completely focused on. I can't really be doing something else. Maybe running or driving would be the only ones. But in any event, I listen to the podcast and I regret it now because I don't want to have their ideas competing with my ideas. I feel like I've observed enough that I have my ideas and what you're more likely to do is just to start considering things that your heuristics, your sort of quick assessment of the situation has dismissed for good reason. You start to reconsider them. This is the problem. This is why it's better. Well, I've done better in all these fantasy leagues since leaving Rotowire. When I was in Rotowire, I was forced to talk on the radio two hours a day about fantasy sports, and there's not that much to talk about. So you start eventually talking about everything, and you have all these different guests on, and then every single player is now fair game to talk about. You're actually talking about every single player, the pros and the cons, and pretty soon your mind turns to mush. You like everybody, you hate everybody, just the same as the market. And you forget what you actually think. You, you've listened to so much and talked about so much that you forget what your sort of instincts, what your sort of years of experience honed through your own uh, personal heuristics has led you to. And you're just sort of, you don't have conviction anymore. I think that's uh, 
a bad place to be. I think for the novice, conviction without merit is the worst. And then next, you have this sort of agnosticism where, you know, everything's just what the market says it is. And you take the bargains that fall. That's kind of like level two. And then level three is sort of the other side of it. Um, a guy I follow on Twitter, we talk a lot about Twitter on this podcast too, Jim O'Shaughnessy. He posted something about uh, called the other side of complexity. And it's sort of like when you start, you have simple conclusions. You think what you think. It's like a 17-year-old knows everything about the world. Like they're sure about everything. Parents are a bunch of idiots. And it's, it's conviction, but it's not informed conviction. And then you get into that sort of area where all of those convictions, if you're not, if you're lucky, get upended and you realize that you were wrong and didn't know shit. And then you're sort of in this sense of agnosticism where you sort of see that nobody really knows very much and you just sort of pick up the bargains, so to speak. You, you sort of learn to profit off of other people's false certainty. But then I think there's a level beyond that where you start to understand the world a little bit more and you have some simple heuristics that are just as simple as the 17 year olds, but they're informed simplicity. So it's the other side of complexity. You get to the other side of it. And that's what people make a lot of money for, you know, consultants. I mean, a lot of people make a lot of money just for bullshit reasons, doing bullshit jobs, but that, you know, if you're in high demand as somebody to put on a board or something, it's because this guy's got good judgment. He's gotten to the other side of complexity and has some simple understandings. He can look at a market, can look at a company, can look at state of affairs in the world and have a pretty simple and quick understanding after looking at it um, because there's all of this complexity that they've gotten to the other side of. So I kind of like that idea. And if you've done something for 25 years, like I've done this, um, I don't want more, more input. I don't want more podcasts. So it was, it's a good podcast. I think some people should, I forget what it's actually even called the banana, something, something, the banana, Sean Siegel and uh, Ben Gretsch, but it, uh, it's not for me. I don't need it. I don't want it. I don't want to know what they think specifically. Um, and also I'm very wary of, and these guys are, are seem like they're pretty sharp, but I remember looking at Rufus Peabody's stuff. His new site's bet the process, but his original site um, that he had was the Massey Peabody rankings. And those were terrible for me also because they may have been good in the aggregate, but they were all probability based on what usually happens. And, you know, again, when you get to the other side of complexity, you don't need that. You don't need those sort of agnostic probability heuristics where you're like, well, we've calculated the teams of this sort cover the spread against teams of that sort, you know, at this rate or whatever, um, because in that case, you're actually not even observing the specific game at hand. You're sort of saying generally what happens and it could be completely wrong in this individual case. I think that's what happens. I think that's sort of, I think the probabilistic guys are still in the great agnosticism. Maybe they're at the uh, high end of the agnosticism, but where they, um, they don't have conviction, but they know how to profit off what usually happens and how people usually make errors and they're able to get a little bit ahead of it. But I think for somebody who, has sort of gotten to the other side of it. Uh, it's better to just stick with simple heuristics and wait to find a spot, pick it, see it, have conviction. Doesn't mean you can't be wrong. Of course you can be wrong. Of course you could have made an error. But uh, I think I went really wrong in my old job for maybe a decade, I want to say, by splitting the difference between my own instincts and the sort of probabilistic agnosticism, this sort of midwit, I want to call it midwit, not that these guys aren't smart, but it's it's sort of the province of the midwit where they master this sort of probabilistic thinking and substitute it for actual direct knowledge for you know the other side of complexity type of knowledge. So anyway, I don't know why I'm getting into that. I just listened to this podcast. I regret it. It's a good podcast. I think I regret it because it's good. I don't need it. I don't want it. I have my heuristics. I trust them. And I'm just sort of like, don't put in persuasive stuff that's going to monkey with them. I guess it's my position right now. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'll find out. Last two years, I won the uh, high stakes prime time against players that are in the NFFC Hall of Fame. Maybe I just got lucky in both of them. 
but I just trusted my own instincts and I wasn't so steeped in the, I guess two years ago I was steeped in it because I was still doing the radio show, but at least last year I wasn't. All right. That's just that. That was just on my mind because I was listening to that this morning. Um, if you're sort of newer to fantasy football, if you don't feel like you've gotten to the other side of complexity, it's a good podcast. It may help you even get there because it, it is sharp. They are, they are good analysts and good. They, they do frame things in interesting ways. All right. So I don't know why I just went off on that for so long. I could actually put that in my real man sports podcast, but I think it applies to larger things beyond just fantasy football. But um, so I got back from France and it was a good trip. It was 12 or 13 days. We started out flying to Lyon, driving to Talwar, where our friends have a house. Talwar is a beautiful place. We stayed there three days. The house overlooks uh, Lake Annecy. We got a boat. Sasha went water skiing, went out to lunch, you know, drive the boat up, dock the boat, get lunch, the restaurant, you know, where you dock. Then we went up to this incredible restaurant. We did it last summer too, up in the Alps, way up in the mountains. And they cook you like this gigantic rare steak, bottles of wine, and these uh, potatoes, dauphinoise, this like cheese potato dish, which is very good, and just stuffed ourselves. That was excellent. So then we left there and we took a train up to... I say the Alsace, Sasha says, no, it's just Alsace. It's sort of the eastern part of France, not quite north, sort of mid, mid to north eastern part of France that borders Germany and Luxembourg near there. Strasbourg is the, is the city that's nearby. And we took a, uh, we, we stayed maybe an hour from Strasbourg. I forget the name of the city it may come to me as I uh, am talking. I think it begins with a C. But anyway, it's this very nice little village and... Uh, this is, you know, the Alsatian food is like German. It's like a lot of sausages and pork and steak tartare and potatoes. Um, and we biked around there. I swear to God, we did like the Tour de France. It was like boiling hot. There was a heat wave there. And Sasha luckily had the electric bike. She would not have done it otherwise. But I like literally killed myself to get up this hill. Heather was walking the bike. And Heather's like a workout fanatic. So I, that's pushed myself hard. But then going down was a lot of fun. Uh, just a beautiful area. One village is more quaint than the next. You think it's like fake because it's so Disneyland, so like a cartoon village or a, a village from like, you know, a, a, a movie set. It's like so impossibly quaint. Like you think elves are going to start walking out or something. Then you realize like it's not fake. This is the, this is the real thing. This stuff's 500 years old. This is what those movie lots and cartoons are based on. This is the original thing. It was very hot there. There was just a heat wave. So it was like, you know, 90 degrees and pretty humid. It was nice, but it was a little tough. Then we took a train across France. And it's really funny because we had to change trains in Paris. So we take a train a couple hours to Gare de l'Est, the eastern part of Paris. And then we took two subways, slept with our bags, get into that whole thing too, to another train station and then get on the train to Normandy. Now, it is very weird to treat Paris as like a flyover country. You know, Paris, we're just like, oh, we're just passing through. We just need to get through Paris to get from one side of France to the other. Heather didn't want to do Paris uh, in August. But like, you're like, this is Paris and we're in it. We're on the subway, the metro through Paris. And we're not even getting out to stop because we only had like an hour between the two trains. So I'm like looking out the window or at the doorway of the train station and I'm like, looking at Paris, I'm like, man, this is a nice city. This is such a beautiful place. I can't believe we're here and we're not even going, but we didn't. And we kept going to Normandy, Normandy, you know, where Omaha Beach is, where D-Day happened. But our uh, Heather's old boss, a friend of ours who stayed with us both in LA and Portugal, um, he has a house there. So we go there and it's like the most charming uh, country house you'll ever see with the you know, wooden ceilings and tile floors and nice kitchen and, but it's old, you know, and it's uh, maybe 150 years old and they have sheep. Sasha's playing with the sheep. They have a giant vegetable garden and all these fruit trees, tons of apples and plums and pears. They have chickens running around and it was just really cool. You know, we were like picking the fruit and helping them with stuff, cook dinner for us. It was just uh, a really nice place. And uh, this guy, Charles, who's Heather's, I guess she still does some work for him, but she used to do more. Uh, he, he wrote, this is, this is a real man. Real man writes an 800-page book on Armagnac 
And he's also written like a 300 page book on Calvados. I don't know if you know what Armagnac and Calvados are. Armagnac is kind of like cognac. There's, there's some differences. Can't remember what it is. And Calvados is like those, except I know cognac is made with wine. It's like, you know, obviously it's like 40% alcohol cognac, but it's made with wine and uh, Calvados is made with apples. And so, you know, a couple of nights I was smoking a cigar and he busted out this $250 bottle of Armagnac, of Armagnac and uh, Calvados. And we actually went to the, to the farm where the Calvados is made. I guess these are the best Calvados producers in the world. These uh, two French brothers, goofy guys, very nice. They're also making this new rum. And he explained to me the rum doesn't give you a headache. So he gave me a shot of the rum at about 11 a.m. Uh, we checked out his uh, farm and his you know, the winemaking stuff there was, it was cool. And the Calvados, they mostly do Calvados because apples grow. Um, there's tons of orchards in, in Normandy. And then, you know, we went and saw the D-Day beaches, so went to both of those and also went to sort of the fancy areas like Deauville and um, Enfleur and some of the little towns. And they're, you know, one town, just like in the Alsace, like one town is more beautiful than the next. I mean, it's amazing. Like the whole of France just seems like one incredible town full of old beautiful buildings and architecture and churches i mean one church every town has like the most amazing church you've ever seen i just you realize like how well things were built centuries ago and that they're not that well built now um, but there's a couple of consequences to that and i'll get into those in a minute but normandy you know we saw the movie uh the longest day 1962 john wayne and uh it's pretty good actually it's pretty watchable even sasha was able to sit through like a three-hour movie and then we actually saw the beaches that they stormed and stuff and it was pretty surreal you know just to be there and think about what happened and and they're actually really nice to americans they feel very you know appreciative uh, of americans for that reason obviously and it actually wasn't overrun by tourists the day where there was a bit cloudy and windy and um but it was you know it was kind of deep the whole the whole experience there and then we went on to uh mont saint michel and heather is just like a i mean she just like hits every site and that's like this crazy old castle village fortress on this island right off the beach and you take a bridge go over the bridge to it and it's like this insane place and i uh, went up there then went down to Brittany. Stayed in a hotel in a small town. And and Brittany probably had the nicest towns of all of them, even though all the other ones are extremely nice too. One town after the next. I mean, it's just like the most charming, the best buildings, the nicest, beautiful vistas of ocean and and countryside. I mean, it was just incredible. We rode our bikes through there and went swimming in the in the water. Well, at least Sasha went in all the way. I didn't. I just got my feet wet. But it was cool. We had incredible oysters, best oysters I ever had in Brittany. So fresh. The Normandy ones were good too. Portugal has decent oysters and I shuck a lot of oysters here and they're very good for you, but they're not as good as the ones up there. Those are just incredible oysters. Uh, and then we went back to Lyon. We took a train from Rennes. Sasha keeps correcting the way I say it. Rennes to Re Lyon. That's like a four hour train ride all the way back to where we started and spent the night in Lyon, which is an incredible city and has I think the best food in France, they say. We had a great dinner with, I always get escargot if it's on the menu because I love it. And uh, it reminds me of that uh, Trading Places <laughs> part where Eddie Murphy, he, you know, he's the homeless guy that they put, it, put in the job and make Dan Aykroyd homeless. And he's at the dinner. It's like his first week on the job. He's just been this like homeless dude in Philadelphia. And uh, this guy makes this horrible joke. He said, why did the snail carve an S, the roof of his limousine? And Emerson says, why? And he says, because he wanted to see that S car go. And they're all like, ha, 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 And Eddie Murphy's like cracking up, laughing his ass off. He obviously doesn't know what the hell that is. It's good. Good scene in uh, trade, old school trading places. Anyway, uh, I always get S car go if it's on the menu because I love it. A garlicky, buttery snails. And so, so you know, we, I got that. I got this delicious like veal and this like cream sauce, which I don't usually get, but it was really good. This gazpacho. And then Sasha wasn't feeling well, so Heather took her back to the hotel. So I took Sasha's seat, which was outside in the cool air, finished the second bottle of wine, got myself a very, very dense gluten-free chocolate cake, ate that, um, and then just walked back to the hotel feeling a bit overstuffed uh, and flew in 
on Monday back to Lisbon. But the weird takeaway about all this and is well, two takeaways about all this. And one of them is a little weird is, you know, when you're from the States and especially growing up in New York, all of the best buildings, all the nicest parts are the old parts pretty much. And you get on the Tribeca and you see those beautiful lofts that were converted into multi-million dollar homes. And you see like the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side and Fifth Avenue. And these are all old buildings. You know, the, the oldest buildings are typically the nicest buildings where the desirable places to live. Old money, high class. And, you know, most of that comes from Europe, the architecture and the, the aesthetic sense of it. And when you go to Europe, as a, as a traveler, and I'm sure a lot of you guys have experienced this, like the architecture seems amazing, not Lisbon so much, but obviously Paris, Madrid, Rome, you see all this old architecture, London, and it just looks so high class. And you're like, this is, you know, you can live cheaply in a beautiful building. I mean, cheapish, cheaper than the States for sure. Cheaper than New York for sure. You know, you can live in a building that looks like one of those like multi-million dollar high class New York buildings, but that's just a rate. It's called a, it's just called a apartment in France. And so there's all of that. And you look at the, you know, in the countryside in Brittany and Normandy, the incredible buildings and villages, they're just so quaint. You know, these places would be the Hamptons. These places would be Martha's Vineyard in the U S and they're just one after another, after another, all throughout France, whether you're in the Alsace or, you know, near, uh, and Lake Annecy or, or Normandy or Brittany, they're just one after another of just these incredible, buildings that are old and well-made and countryside with farms and animals. It's just incredible. But there's sort of the flip side of that, which is it's kind of like I always had this dream. I used to love baseball cars and I had this dream and you'd hear stories about this where, you know, somebody was cleaning out an old closet, some mom or grandmother's cleaning out an old closet of their kid's bedroom. They're now grown and there's like a big box of baseball cards and there's like all these Mickey Mantles from the 50s and 60s and Willie Mays and Jackie Robinson's and all those cards. I always had this like dream of like, ah, oh, it'd be so awesome to find a trove of those baseball cards, you know, rookie Frank Robinson's and Tom Seaver's and, you know, not even the, the 52 Mantle, but, you know, you could get Hank Aaron's and all those guys. Uh, and I always like wished, wished I could have it, but this going through France and seeing all the towns and the architecture it was almost like going through a closet, but the closet was like, there were like a hundred closets and there were a thousand closets and there were 10,000 closets and all of them were stacked with these cards. And there were just like hundreds of thousands of Mickey Mantles from the fifties and sixties and Willie made. And you were like, wait a second. I thought these were scarce. I thought this was something that only a few people could have that there weren't many left. And you're like, holy shit, these things are a dime a dozen. It's just like, it was like too much. It was like fake. It was like, wait, what? And this town is just as nice as that town. I thought that was the nicest town in the world. I want to buy a house here and just live in this quiet town with my sheep and my, uh, my goats and my garden. And now you're telling me like, this is the whole country is like this and the country's not even doing that well. So it was just very kind of eye opening. It's kind of counterfeited it in a weird way. I mean, it was still really nice, but you're like, Oh, this is just the, this is just basic. All this stuff. This is just normal back then. Everything's old then. So it was a very weird feeling to see all of that stuff. And then, you know, the place where we went um, with Heather's old boss, like, you know, his, um, I guess their ex-wife, she was there for a bit and she was gardening and she was pulling the weeds and getting the eggs from the chickens. And she was, you know, shearing the, the sheep and it was just a lot of work. And, you know, this, this romantic notion of living off the land and off the grid and all that stuff. But I mean, it is hard work and, you know, it's not like the total conveniences of the modern U.S. city. You know, obviously, they have heat and hot water, but it's not, you know, it's not like this, you know, there's an extra, there was no extra wing with a separate bathroom. I mean, obviously, you know, these, there's some probably mansions that have that kind of stuff, but, and this was a very nice house, beautiful. So it just really kind of eye-opening. I mean, it's romantic, but, you know, it's, it's, it's rugged. It's still rugged out there. And, it was even in in Brittany, especially, it was cold. So it was hot as hell in the Alsace. But in Brittany, it was actually like I was wearing a sweatshirt during the middle of the day. That's how cold it was. And, you know, imagine how wet. It doesn't get like free. I don't think it snows much, if at all, there. But it, it's very wet, humid, cold, you know, probably in the 40s and high 30s in the winter and, and wet, and dark and rainy. And so, you know, it's it's it was great, but it was 
same time kind of opened your eyes about it. The other thing is that Heather, the thing about Heather is, is good and this is bad. It's mostly good, but it's a little bit bad. So Heather is super cheap. I mean, she'll spend money on a nice hotel now and then. She'll spend money on a decent meal now and then. But basically, she doesn't like to spend money. And I could analyze where that comes from, but it's beyond the purview of this podcast. And she is just really tight. For the most part, that's good, right? Like if you had a partner who had the opposite problem, um, you're fucked, right? They will spend you into bankruptcy. You can never make enough money. You can never be free. You can never relax. That is a true disaster. Do not get involved with somebody who needs to have the finest things, the finest everything, is addicted to shopping. Do not get involved with someone like that. Get the fuck out if that's the situation because that is that will destroy you. It will destroy your peace of mind. It will destroy your life. Well, Heather's the opposite, which is great. Like she's cheap. She doesn't buy expensive clothes. I can don't even worry about you know what she's doing if she wants to go do something. I don't even think about it because I know she's going to be frugal. But the flip side is, you know, we're always renting like the shittiest rental car. We're always dealing with this random rental car company. Although, ironically, it was Enterprise that fucked us. I'm not going to get into that, though. I might have to go orbits on Enterprise when I mean, they really fucking, there were scratches on the car. And we, we had to take pictures of it all. And even though we took pictures, they try, they're trying to charge us and we're going to fight it. But if, if the credit card doesn't get rid of it, we're going to go fucking, I'm going to go fucking orbits on that shit, full orbits. And uh, so we'll see, but I'm not going to get into that here yet. We're going to see how it goes, but they, they're, that was really scummy. That was enterprise. And the cheap one we got, which is called Rentscape, I guess Rentscape is how you would pronounce it in English, uh, where we had to like wait for like 40 minutes at the airport, not knowing where they're picking us. Finally had to call them. They sent a van to get us, take us like three miles from the airport in this random alleyway and rent us a car. That would work out fine actually, but she's always doing the cheapest thing with that kind of shit. And just like the hotels, like, they're not actually even that cheap. There's a couple hundred euros a night, but for like the good ones, it was like 500. So she went with these and like hotels were just okay. The bathrooms were just okay. It was like three of us in a room. You don't sleep well. Everyone's especially me getting up to pee in the middle of the night. And like everyone's getting woken up complaining, you know, and then you got to pack up all your shit every three days. Make sure you don't leave your cords. I left a, I think it's Sasha's fault, but she denies it. And so we got in a big fight. And now I'm not going to say it to her, but I think she left my, she was trying to charge her MP3 player she left this like nice uh, Mac adapter. So I'm going to vent by saying the podcast, but she denies it. So it's possible I lost it. But when she's involved, you know, 11 year old, it's more, most likely her. But anyway, I lost some shit. I didn't lose any clothing, but it's always stressful. You got to make sure you get everything every three days. And then you got a train to catch a rental car to return. You got to fill it with gas. You got to turn that shit, drop off the keys, get the train. You know, it's like one thing after another. We when we took the train through Paris, you'd like get one train, schlep all your shit, two different subways. They were like, Oh, don't take a car, there's too much construction in Paris. Hell, much easier to take the subway. So you're taking these Paris subways and like buying a subway pass in Paris, and then you're like, you know, getting on the other train. And it's just a lot of fucking schlepping. And like after like 12 days, you know, I start to get my wits end. You know, I've realized like I just want a country house where I can chill. I like seeing all the shit. I'm glad to have done it. Uh, but I feel like, you know, when Bitcoin goes to a million shit, I'll do it, you know, first class, the whole thing, you know, and stay in the super nice hotel and stay an extra day, not necessarily check out, you know, be trying to be, you know, pay for a late checkout or whatever. I, I want to just do it like chill. I want to just uh, have it be more chill. And so uh, I'll talk about this in the Twitter notion thing. I've, you know, people say chillax. They say chillax, dude, chillax, you know, chill and relax. But no one ever says relil. They say chillax. They don't say relil. So I told Heather to relil and she didn't like it very much. But now I'm using that. You know, relil, dude, just relil. I was posting that shit over at Noster. And I'm going to talk about Noster in a minute. Um, I guess I have a lot of shit to say. The only other thing I'll say about the trip is other thing Heather does since we're on uh, the topic of complaining about Heather is the way like a, an NFL offensive lineman would eat after a, a grueling overtime game. That's how she is with like seeing shit when she's traveling. Like she wants to see every tourist site and, you know, Sasha and I are like pretty similar. Like we're game for a couple of them, but like the fourth one, we're like, nah, just come on. Just no, we've seen enough. We want to chill out. It's too much. It's too much. We've been schlepping for fucking 10 days We've driven and gotten out and walked up a giant fucking hill with 10,000 steps to up. Like, I don't mean 10,000 steps like on your app. I mean 10,000 stairs up to get to the top of Mont Saint-Michel. And 
I just can't take that shit anymore. So now we're not seeing this other fucking tourist thing yet after, you know, after what we've already gone through, but she's always pushing for more. So I told you we did that like tour de France spike and the absolute scorching heat in the Alsace just to see this other town. It was cool, you know, and it was fun biking downhill, but we start getting back toward sort of the 10 mile biking through the forest, which is nice, but flat. And as we're getting toward there, she's like, Oh, there's a Jewish cemetery right there. It's a Jewish cemetery. We got to see that. And I'm like, nah. And Sasha's like, no. We're like, no, nah, we don't want to see that. We don't care. She's like, how could you not see that? You're here. It's a Jewish cemetery. I mean, don't you care? And she's trying to make me feel bad because like, we're Jewish. We're not seeing the, the Jewish cemetery somewhere in the middle of the Alsace. And I'm like, for fuck's sake, is this like a Jewish area? Is this like the Jew where the Jews lived like back then? And I go, what is it? I, what are you even talking about? She's like, no, they just probably killed a lot of Jews back then. I'm like, we're in Europe. They killed Jews in literally every city here, you know, where everywhere we go. It's like, oh yeah, they killed the Jews over here in 1500, the Inquisition. They killed the Jews over here. Oh, they killed the Jews here in World War II. They killed the Jews everywhere in Europe. We live in Europe. It's just a fact. And I'm not going to fucking tour every single cemetery to remind myself how they killed my ancestors in every city. Like, you know, it was bad. I, I get it. It was horrible. I, I get it. But like at some point, you know, we live here. If we don't want to live here anymore, we can move and say, you know what? They killed too many Jews here we're out, but we live here and we're not doing that. So I don't even have to go to every cemetery and everything. I mean, Jesus Christ, for fuck's sake, how many cemeteries, you know, these Jewish people going, Oh, they killed Jews here. Let me go see it. Oh, well, great. Oh yeah. That's where they killed the Jews. Yep. That's where they killed the Jews 400 years ago in this place or hundred years ago in this place. You know, she's trying to make me feel bad. Like, Oh, I don't care that they killed the Jews. No, I care. It was horrible. But how many places have we been? How many times you got to see dead Jews in a cemetery? I mean, you know, I, I'm sorry. I'm over it. I, I get it. I get the history. I believe it. I'm not a denier. I'm a denier of a lot of shit. I'm not a Holocaust denier. I get it. It was real. It was terrible. You know, I mean, the truth is you're going to spend more time in a cemetery than you are anywhere else. You know, I mean, you're going to spend plenty of time in a cemetery, like, uh, you know, eternity in a cemetery eventually, you know, but now that I'm alive, I don't need to go seeking it out. I'm going to spend plenty of time there eventually. You know, we all are. So, um, yeah, I had to put the kibosh on that shit. You know, it's like, oh, we got to, oh, they killed a bunch of Jews here. Let's go see it. <laughs> Why? What is the fucking obsession, the morbid obsession with that? I, I don't get it. It's people think they have to see that. All right. The other thing that is funny about France is if your train is late, you know, it'll say, oh, retard. On retard. My train is on retard. And then we were walking through Leon and Heather had made this reservation for like 7.30 and she took us in the wrong direction. So we're going to get there at about 8. So she had to call. I said, you should call the restaurant and tell them. You should say, je suis en retard. If you're going to tell the restaurant you're late in France, you basically tell them, I am a retard. So I was like, call them. Tell them you're a retard. At some point, uh, you think that somebody would... Uh, mature in their sense of humor, but it just never happened for me. I don't know about uh, the rest of you, but it's just never happened. All right. That's it for France. That was kind of a lot. A couple other things that are on my mind. There's a lot of shit on my mind, you know, like a lot of fucked up stuff going on in the world. But, you know, I was off Twitter for two weeks. So I wasn't getting my daily dose of it and, and it was better. I'm on Noster now. I deleted Twitter from my phone. The, the smartest thing I ever did in my life, delete Facebook in 2018 because you know not only is facebook like a huge scourge and they're spying on you and all that shit but during covid you had all these people you knew from your past who were like they should put the unvaccinated in camps and i'll never know who among my childhood friends wanted to put me in a camp and that's priceless and so that was you know just really smart to just get rid of instagram facebook whatsapp all that shit but the next smartest thing i did was just delete twitter from my phone before the trip because that's what you usually have with you when you're traveling and i don't have it. I just, if I'm in line or I'm waiting somewhere, I got to check out Noster. I only have 47 followers now in Noster. I said when I got to 50, I was going to mostly post there, but that's close enough. I'm already posting on Noster mostly. And it's a lot different. It's a lot of Bitcoiners there. It's a lot of, you know, it's not as active. You don't get much engagement. You get a like here or there. Some people zap you money. They get zapped some sats. It's probably a few cents worth here and there, but one day those will be worth something. And it's just cool. You post something that interests somebody and they send you a little bit of money. As I said on Nostra, I ain't going to work on Elon's farm no more. Maybe on Tuesdays. I'm going to do it every Tuesdays and I get to say, see you next Tuesday. Because as, as I said, my sense of humor has not matured since I was about 15. 
So I will see you next Tuesday on Twitter. But Twitter, you know, there's this guy, the ethical skeptic, who I love, posted very prescient stuff about COVID and the vaccines and, and even about climate change. He's been sort of right about almost everything. And I don't see his posts. I have to click on his, when I click on his profile, I see that he posted three hours ago and I was on Twitter then, didn't see any posts of his. And so I'm positive people aren't seeing my posts either. And just like, fuck that, right? Like why build your house on a unsteady foundation where you can get rugged any second? You know, why build, you say, well, you have all your followers on Twitter, all your reaches on Twitter, but it's like a lot of people immigrated to the US from places like Iran or Russia or, Czech Republic before it was, you know, was part of the Soviet Union and they had to leave their money behind. They didn't get to take it with them and it was worth it for them to, you know, start a new life. You don't always get to take your possessions with you. And that's sometimes the price of freedom. So I'm not going to delete my entire Twitter account, but it's going to be see you next Tuesday. Post a little there. Try to get people through this podcast through my Substack to find me on Noster. And you guys can, it's N-O-S-T-R. You guys can search for it and figure it out yourselves. It's not that hard. It's easier than Bitcoin for sure. And the stakes are much lower because you're not putting all this money into it. It's free. And I do think it's going to end up beating Twitter. I think it's going to obsolete Substack, Facebook, Twitter, all of it. Because what it actually is, I used to think it was like, oh, it's like, remember Parler? Parler got crushed when Apple stopped carrying its app. I, I used to think it was kind of like a competitor to Twitter, like Mastodon, Parler, all these shitty ones. But it actually isn't that because they're just different platforms owned by or run by somebody. And, you know, sort of like, okay, well, they'll compete for users, compete for network effects. But that's not what uh, Nostar is. It's a protocol. It's an open protocol, just like um, SMTP is an email protocol, right? You don't, nobody owns email. You're not, uh, email's not competing with, with Fmail, you know, it's just email. And then maybe Google will be a, you know, Gmail will be a client or, Microsoft Outlook or Yahoo Mail be a client and you can access the SMTP protocol through different clients, just like you can access the web through different browsers. But the web is the web. You know, it's not, you don't go on one web with Apple, with uh, Safari and one web with Chrome and one web with Firefox. It's just the web and you can use different uh, clients to access it. Same with email. Well, Nostra is the same way. It's basically just uh, a protocol of sending content. And this is why it's more powerful and it's going to defeat these um, these walled gardens, Twitter's trying to not let, you know, its links show up on Substack and trying to, uh, you know, what did they say? Lawful, but awful that uh, whatever Linda Yaccarino, whatever her name is, she thinks she's going to shepherd Twitter into the uh, free, you know, the the public square that, that the corporate advertisers want. But you're going to have fucking apparatchiks like that running shit and fucking it up. And that's great, actually, because it's never going to compete with Noster. It would be like AOL and its walled garden. Remember, AOL bought Time Warner. AOL was big time, you know, in the stock market. It was a, considered like the, the web. And then it's dead now, basically, because the, it couldn't compete with the open web. And Nostra is going to kill all those platforms the same way because um, we don't want fucking Linda Yaccarino telling us what to say. Who the fuck is she? She's some careerist ad exec. I mean, who the WEF? Who the fuck is she? I mean, who, the, who gives a fuck who Elon Musk hires? As, oh, I'm going to hire the CEO and she'll tell you. She'll make the rules for you. Fuck you. Elon Musk is supposed to be for free speech. I'm going to write a whole thing on this about con artists and scammers. And I think Elon Musk, I'm, I'm starting to get a really bad vibe from him and I'll, I'll get into that in a bit. But the, the point is like Twitter is just another one of those. And Noster, the difference is it's just going, it's just like the, it's just a protocol. It's just a way of sending uh, information back and forth and developers just going to build different things. Like, you know, there's already one that I'm experimenting with. It's just sort of like a, uh, you know, a Substack clone. It's like a, you know, blogging website, but it that connects with Noster. And so all of these things are just going to go through Noster. It's not like Noster is going to make money, just like, you know, HTTPS doesn't make money. It's not like the web is making money for somebody or, or email itself is making money for somebody. There's just going to be clients. There's going to be browsers that you access it through. And basically it's peer to peer, right? So that's the difference, right? So HTTPS is is the the web itself, and SMTP is emailing peer to peer, you know. And and this is going to be it may even end up superseding email. That would be interesting. But this is basically just peer to peer social social media. It's just I've got my identity, my private key. You've got yours, and we communicate to each other. And it doesn't really matter what the 
browser ends up being, whether Twitter's going to end up being a browser, if it even exists, you know, or Facebook will be a browser, but the protocol is not going to be owned by Facebook Inc or Meta Inc or X Inc or whatever the fuck you want to call it. It's not going to be owned by some corporation that has all your data and has all your identity and is selling it to advertisers and the government or whoever. It's just going to be, you have your own private and public key and everybody else on the network has their private and public key and you interact. It's like Bitcoin for money. This is going to be for social interaction. And it's really, really powerful when you think about it because it's just like AOL would own like all the content and own all the, uh, you know, it's AOL's sort of shopping mall, basically it used to be the web. And then once that it lost out because why not have Rotowire or interact over the web and everybody has their real estate on the web in the form of a, you know, a domain name or a URL. Um, this is the same thing. You know, you, you just can interact with other people directly. There's not going to be a middleman that controls anything. It's just open web. So this is going to win. It's not going to steal Twitter's users. It's just going to incorporate and uh, surround Twitter and then Twitter will turn into a browser. And it's just a matter of time, whether it's a year or 10, um, it's going to happen. And I don't know, like I'm posting, I have a real man sports account on Noster also. I don't know that it's going to be like, oh, I'll make money because I'll be the first sports guy on Noster. I don't really think it'll work like that because I think you're going to end up finding the people you like on Twitter on Noster eventually when everyone gets there. There'll be, you know, more and more tools built for it, more and more clients and different, you know, as I said, like there's the one that's like a blogging thing that you can blog right into the open web. It's not owned by Substack. It's not owned by the that you know that your your stuff isn't kept in a centralized um, server there, so I've just been posting there. I'll give you a sample of what you're missing out on. I was flying back on EasyJet, and so I, I've already thought of this a few years ago. But Ryanair, which is one of the cheap European airlines, is stands for route yourself alternatively, notwithstanding apparently inexpensive rates. Ryanair. I, thought, I figured out e EasyJet is evil assholes stealing your joy every trip. That's what EasyJet stands for. And our, our trip was actually wasn't even that bad, but I like to uh, dump on them because those discount airlines, it's like they nickel and dime you. They don't want to let your bag on. And I, I have my method where I just carry my bags over my shoulder and I just act like I own the plane. Like it's my plane, it's my place. And I walk in like without even questioning, oh, here is my bag too. You know, you don't ask, you just walk in like you're the boss of it. What's the worst that can happen? They, they stop you, but they don't, they just get the vibe of, oh, I'll just let this go. It's, it's not worth stopping this guy. So the, the trip was fine actually, but it's just, they always have like the worst terminal at the end of the airport. And there's always like a bus to get the plane, all the shit didn't actually happen this time. It was fine, but in general, but again, as I said, Heather's super cheap. We save a lot of money. We always fly cheap. So a lot of easy jet type of flights. Fortunately, that's the kind of shit I put posted on Noster. I'm just going to keep posting there. And it's, as I said, on my phone, um, it's all I got. So that's that. And finally, just a little uh, conversation I had with Heather that I thought was interesting is we were having dinner and uh, we were talking about somebody and who hadn't gotten back to me, somebody who probably would have gotten back to me, but they had also just subscribed to my uh, Chrysalis uh, Substack, And she was like, do you think he's not gotten back to you because he read your stuff and he's like aghast, you know, does, you know, that bother you or whatever. And I was like, you look, if, if, if he chooses to read my stuff and doesn't like it and is pissed at me for, you know, telling what I think is, you know, what I take to be the truth and expressing what I think is important, that's his problem. You know, I mean, I can't control what he thinks and you know, what, what am I supposed to do? I can't, I can't cater to normies who, you know, might be offended by something I might say. I mean, look, I know a lot of the shit I say is going to bother some normies, but like, you know, I mean, that's, that's their, again, it's their problems, their world. They want to live in. I can't cater to that. She was like, I'm jealous of that. Uh, I'm jealous of that perspective. I wish I had that same, you know, sense of myself, you know, same exact sense of conviction that, you know, who cares if people are mad at you or judging you or whatever. Um, and I said, you know, I think that's a bit of a misunderstanding. I'm not like, it's not that it doesn't bother me that somebody that I know well or is like blowing me off. And it, I don't know for sure that it's because of that. It's just, it's possible. That's because I don't, I didn't, but it's not that it doesn't bother me or it doesn't hurt my feelings. It's just that if 
that might be the case. I don't think too much about it. Like I have the thought, oh, this guy may be, you know, judging me for what I'm posting or think I'm a bad person or avoiding me for that reason. But I don't try to get into it from his perspective or think about it too much. I'm just like, I, I just think I'm not going to think about this because that is their problem, which is different than what I think people think it is, which is you can think about how much everyone's mad at you and you, you know, it doesn't bother you at all. Maybe I'll get there some point too, but that's not where I'm at. Where I'm at is it does bother me. I don't like being judged. I don't like being considered the bad guy or, you know, on the wrong team or whatever it is, or the apostate. I don't like it at all. I just don't think about it. I just, or if I think about it, I think about it for a second and I let it go. And if I don't let it go, then when I notice that I haven't let it go, then I let it go. And I just try to stick with, you know, my life, my things I can do well, take care of my health, take care of my family, relate to people in an honest uh, and sincere way, and then, and move on. And I, so I think that's sort of a misconception that you have to think about all the mean shit people are saying about you and be okay with that. I don't think that's right. I think you just realize that whether or not they're saying that, and you don't know because you don't really know what's going on in people's minds. They could just have not received the email or they could have just meant to say something but got busy and forgot. I mean, I've forgotten to respond to emails occasionally. I'm pretty good with it, but there's some that I've forgotten, I'm sure. And that's it. I just don't go there very often. But she thought like I was like, you know, doing what she would do, which is go there and not care. I don't care because I'm not thinking about it. When I think about it, of course, I care. Maybe one day I won't, but I don't, I just don't focus on it. That's it. And it, and it got me thinking about the podcast I did a couple of weeks ago where I went into that whole, remember the, uh, the old Jewish couple that was like, what's he doing? How's he making a living and questioning all that stuff. And I started to think I probably shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have gone into that. Not that I, you know, it's no big deal. I'm not going to delete it. But, but that was sort of going into sort of that side of things in detail to sort of explain it. Maybe it's useful for the purposes of the podcast. But, but the truth is I, I, sh I shouldn't even be doing that either. I mean, the idea is you, you do want to question yourself. You don't want to be like um, the guy in, I was talking about that sideways, who's just like a miserable wretch and in total denial of how unfree he really is, pretending he's like free and chill, that he's just relilling. Um, you don't want to be like that. But at the same time, you know, I don't think I am like that. And so I don't need to go into like their version of what might be happening or use their judgment as a window to sort of really absorb the worst negative negativity about myself I could muster and then fight it off. Even if you're successful at fighting it off and be like, no, that's wrong you're still going there. And I think, I think really the reality is to be open to not criticism because fuck criticism. Like I don't, you know, I don't want anyone's unsolicited criticism, but open to like, you know, what you're feeling. So if you're feeling something a little off about what you're saying or if things that you're doing are not working out for you in some way, I think you should observe that. But I don't think you need to necessarily verbalize every single possible objection to what you're doing or every argument about what you're doing. Again, it goes back to what I started the podcast with the uh, NFL stuff. It's like, I don't need to fucking listen to a bunch of guys talk about all the other players that I might be missing out on and what I could be doing instead and somebody else's process. That's their process, right? Like I'll make my mistakes. It's not going to be totally right what I think, but I feel like I am on the other side of complexity with football and again, I will make mistakes, but I will, my judgment's as good as theirs, as good as anyone's. And I think at a certain point, you know, and usually it's probably your forties at a minimum, some people don't get there their whole lives, but you know, I think a healthy person gets there in their forties, probably maybe a really, you know, unique person get there in their twenties or thirties, but I would find that very rare where you're like, I'm an adult and an adult human is the highest authority in the world. There's no authority higher. You could say maybe God or the Tao, but that's the adult human has that within him. So does the 20 something human if they're open to it. You know, everybody has that. So nobody has the, you know, no priest has exclusive access to God. No scientist has exclusive access to what medicines you should take or not. You are an adult human. And so you have access to the highest authority in the universe that we know of. 
And so you don't really need somebody to tell you how to be, what to do. You need to pay attention to yourself. You need to actually extricate yourself from the influences that are, you know, trying to co-opt your own personal judgment and always trust the experts or like, you know, make you subservient to the experts. And of course, you know, like in a court of law, we want to listen to expert testimony. You know, we'll have an expert will testify about this and the other paid for expert will testify the opposite thing. And the jury will assess, you know, what's more credible and what that means for the verdict in the case. But remember, it's always the juror, the adult human making the verdict. It's not the expert. So the idea of, oh, trust the experts. The expert's not the expert in judgment. He's an expert in some very narrow technical matter that that he can help clarify for the layman but you the layman the juror the adult human have to render the ultimate verdict have to make the judgments in your life and there is nobody more qualified than you and that's why it's a jury of their peers that is adjudicating on matters of life and death fortunes being lost and won um, is adult humans using their best judgment you know getting the expert testimony to the extent that it's persuasive or not but in ultimately making their own call, you, you can look at, you can look at how you're doing and observe it and feel what you're feeling and try to connect better with your own judgment. And I think a lot of people um, are very divorced from their own judgment. They have no idea even what they're feeling or they don't trust themselves. They don't trust their observations so that there is, you know, a lot of lost souls out there. But I think that the way to remedy that is just to connect more and, and not constantly be, um, second guessing yourself and your own calls so much. And so a couple of podcasts ago, I did that and, uh, and it's okay. Cause that is something I did also. And I'm not going to second guess that so much. I'm just going to say like, um, in retrospect, fuck it, fuck them, fuck it. You know, you have to, you have to live according to your own code and, um, you know, I'm trying to do that. All right. That's it for now till next time.